Podcasts aren't the future of radio. They're the present. You are about to listen to a ministry-approved podcast. For more great audio entertainment, visit ministryofpodcasts.com. And now, your feature presentation. Yeah, my microphone sounds good. How's your sound? Mine sounds good. How do I sound? I think we sound great. What do you say? Should we go? Let's do it. Let's do it. Brought to you by Audible. Go to paulthebookguy.com slash audible and get a free book just for signing up for a free trial. Coming to you live from the Book Central Studios at the top of Book Mountain, this is episode 007, or 007, The Golden Voices. This week we interview Scott Brick, actor, audiobook narrator, and harbinger of worldwide audiobook domination. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Paul the Book Guy. Paul the Book Guy. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris the Book Guy. Chris Jager. Hey, everybody. I'm Greg Ott. Greg Ott. And we're back for another week of books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. We sound great. It's the new microphones. It's the new microphones. I'm really glad that uh, Greg the Book Guy went out today and picked up all those great new uh, microphones. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. If Candace is listening, Greg didn't pay for them. He just went and picked them up, all right? It was, it was all them. paid for by pdbg.com, all right? There you go. Thank you for your uh, PaulTheBookGuy.com, that is. <laughs> what are you guys reading this week? Uh, I just finished uh, The Covenant, which uh, I'll be bringing up a little bit later on the episode. And uh, after that, not a whole lot. Nice. I was think I, we, we, we got some... Uh, some copies of that and uh, advanced reader copies. We're yes. big wheels now. We're big wheels now. Reading books before they come out. Big wheels. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm going to get to that one soon too. Anything else on your plate, uh, Chris? This week, I had to cry through this, and uh, I got to tell you, this this uh, book podcasting is uh, a real time consumer. You got to dedicate and focus on the next book the, the second you get out of the uh, out of the episode recording. That's so right. that's been consuming me all week. And you, Greg? Anything on, on uh, the? Radar doing, this week? Still doing the girl with the the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Yeah, you're really uh, plowing happy. through this Millennium I'm series. Plowing through the Millennium series, nice. and uh, it's good. Stuff's happening now. Again, this was another one that started off a little bit slow, but boom, boom, boom. Now, now things are happening. They're killing people. Yeah, oh, people, no, sorry. People are finally dying, so that's right. good. You know, it's, <laughs> it's always a good book when people are dying. Uh, you know, still uh, listening to at speed and a half. I'm still listening to the rise and fall of the Third Reich, and on my Kobo, uh, everybody wants some. Uh, Van Halen. So I've got my, my attention is divided three ways. So that's why. How I'm are you really finding happy. the Kobo so far? I'm liking it. Well, and, and I'm able to I'm able to sync it with my uh, with my iPhone. So I'm actually reading oh, okay. probably more on my iPhone. So, than so the, the bookmarks Kobo. sync just like uh, in the iBook store. Nice. I, I'm not having difficulties with it at all. Good. Good. And I uh, actually this week I finished uh, Deadlight District by Jill Edmondson. 
really enjoyed that. I know that your wife wants to... She <laughs> couldn't put it down. She, oh, she, she loved it. And, and, uh, and she has no... She wasn't in on the interview last week with Jola. Right. Oh, she was reading Blood and Groom, right? The first right. in the series? She was right. reading the first in the series. She loved it. She actually came down while I was watching uh, television. I was watching uh, what... Uh, Very nice. doesn't make a difference. And she said, oh my God, where's the second book of this? I love this book. I just burned through it. And which, is I, the, uh, which is the better one? I haven't read this. I, I, I prefer Deadlight District. I think is that is that copy up for grabs? I, I believe Candace I is borrowing oh, it next. I got to fight Candace for it. But oh, I think man. I think Chris, if if you were to maybe uh, pick it up on the iBook store, maybe the okay, the I got it. I got offers. I got to do my duty. To which I believe the, right uh, now is a ten guy. and a fiver. <laughs> I think fiver. it can. It, can, it might be just a fiver. We, we can pick it up for maybe you. Maybe we should go to three or four Think Geek item of the weeks. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and I've been plowing through, not plowing through, but uh, I've been listening to The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, as read by Scott Brick, who we have coming up soon in the podcast. Uh, really enjoyed that one. I'm going to talk about it this week, and I, I highly recommend it to the two of you and to all the constant listeners. It's going it's to be a lot of fun. Uh, Chris, did you want to start off with uh, your pick for the week? Uh, sure. Your, your read of the week? The Covenant. One second. Fiction. 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 How about that, eh? Live jingles. We had a new Live jingle machine, jingles. folks. <laughs> Just so you know, we have a new jingle box. We got new microphones. We're getting really fancy here. We are this close from taking the show on the road. And you got to admit, that live. was tight. Come on. The truth of it is, Paul just doesn't want to do all this editing on Sundays anymore. That's right. We're so. editing live on the fly now. I get my Sundays back. So what I've got in front of me is uh, Covenant by Dean Crawford. This is an advanced reader's edition, so this will be coming out in... October 2011 from Ooh, Touchstone. So soon. thank nice. you very much, Touchstone, for the advanced copy. That's right. And then Simon & Schuster, I believe, uh, sent us all these. Uh, Simon & Schuster's yes. the parent company. That's right. And uh, yes, well, thank you very much for the gift. I uh, had a lot of fun reading it this week. Um, so uh, let me ask you, gentlemen, uh, what would be the impact of finding an alien carcass uh, about 7,000 years old buried in the desert in oh, Israel? It would just touch Every part of life, yeah, I think, that, in every one in different ways. How yeah. are you going to tell that story, right? That's, so that is, uh, that is Dean Crawford's uh, mission in this book. So this is a thriller. Okay. Um, we follow the, uh, the, the... The book starts out with the discovery, of course, of the alien carcass, and the, the holy grail here is the alien DNA. Ah, so there's an, enough of the carcass left that... So there's actual meat that they can well, get DNA from. This is one of the, the fun things with thrillers, right? You read a Dan Brown, you read a Tom Clancy, you learn something. Right. That is part of the, the, they have to teach you something. They have to sort of, you know, uncover something that, that make you feel all smart. So this book, uh, you learn an awful lot about cloning, learn an awful lot about DNA, learn a little bit about archaeology. Um, the archaeologist who uncovers uh, the body, a young woman named Lucy, disappears. And her grandfather, <laughs> fortunately enough, uh, happens to be the, a director in the Defense Intelligence Agency. How fortunate. How yes. fortunate, yes. It's amazing how these things always <laughs> It's happen. amazing how these things happen. <laughs> so the, the grandfather in the Defense Intelligence Agency finds our... Is it, why he would go to Chicago and find a drunk photojournalist to ex-Marine, of course, uh, but drunk, um, shell-shocked, um, what, what are you, uh, the post-traumatic stress-relieved right. soldier... Why he would select him for the mission of discovering his daughter or finding his daughter in, in Israel is, is beyond me. Uh, however, he does have extensive experience in Israel and in the Gaza Strip as he had lost his own fiancé there to Islamic terrorists once upon a time. So he gets a chance to you know, settle the score, as it were. Right. Uh, so he uh, sets off for Israel uh, with 
uh, the young woman's who's disappeared with her mother of all things. Okay. The pieces are all fitting together. So, I know, yeah. I know. The DIA's grandfather, so his daughter, uh, the, the, the drunken, dissolute, you know, photojournalist slash soldier, and now off they go. Um, so far, they sound like interesting characters. Yeah, I know, I know. If, if in, you know, in pl- implausible, but... Unwinding the story for you. If you can put the strings together between these characters, they're good. They seem like good we're, characters. We're only halfway here. The... the the impact of, I mean, at the very end of the book, you know, the author makes the, the, the suggestion that, you know, if such a thing were ever discovered, you know, a good two-thirds of the population on the earth really wouldn't be able to handle it. Like, they just... Right. They, they, what, their heads would explode? More or less. They would, they would all, you know, drink the purple Kool-Aid and pray for the spaceship to come. Um, there would be all kinds of, you know, dire, crazy things that would I'm be... I'm sure. I'm sure the, a, lot, the, a lot of people would, of, you yeah. know, the, the collapse of, of Catholicism, who knows what, right? Uh, it doesn't have to touch any of that, um, but... The, the evil arch enemy in the book is the uh, an evangelical church. Uh, there's a pastor uh, high up in the American organization who uh, also runs and funds a, a military weapons organization, uh, and they're experimenting with a, a, a battlefield treatment that will put soldiers into hypothermia, uh, so critical injured soldiers into hypothermia to get them back to a base for treatment. Okay, so, so, so sort of just Sounds putting them in suspended, innocent, right? Yes, putting them into some sort okay. of suspended so cryo shipment type cryo shipment of a, of a you know okay. of a critically injured soldier. Now the diabolical part is uh, with this freezing business, with this freezing research, he's using like you know drug addicts from DC uh, to exp- well, he's basically he's got his hands on some of this alien DNA and oh. he's um, using cloning techniques to create an embryo. That he's going to implant in our, our poor archaeolo- young archaeologist. <laughs> and he's going to give birth to an alien, uh, which according to him is a Nephilim from the, uh, uh, from the Old Testament, which would be an, uh, an angel uh, that had mated with, Ooh, uh, with humans. We've hey, got, we've hey, got so religion. So now you're bringing okay. it into religion. Yes. And, you know, I was going to say that, that probably when, if they found these alien, this alien DNA, there's probably some crackpot evangelical. Hold, hold up on the crackpot business. Now, the, the author, again, you know, makes the point, and I, I, I would suggest that he's stretching things a bit, but it makes for a good story, that in every civilization... Uh, there are stories of beings uh, that don't look like us, who are you know twice our size. They have big eyes, right? There's archaeological evidence, uh, not fossil specific, but like cave drawings, physical accounts, right, of basically alien interference. And this was a cross cultural. Any religion you can find, you can find some reference to an alien. Right. Mm. He's suggesting sort of an alien intervention. And then the the book also makes the point that at 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 one point in our ancient history. We suddenly uh, began smithing metals. We suddenly uh, began uh, writing. We suddenly began financial accounting. We suddenly began sort of uh, uh, organizing on, on a city level instead of like a hovel or you know hunter gatherer level. Okay, and so, the so there books, was a spike in technology and, and a spike awareness. in organization, awareness, basically writing, communication. And this was, of course, um, and then the, the book uh, finishes. I, I'm giving it away. I don't care. You can read it. It's a fun read. Okay. Um, it's a it's it's a page turner. Uh, the structure of the book I found a little bit interesting. Uh, there's like 97 chapters for, you know, the, the 250-odd pages. Yeah, so it's like, page, like chapters can be sort of two pages long. But he's... Uh, sometimes I like that. He, when, the, the action, what, I'm, what, it's, what only suggests is the action jumps around. I, now, I would suggest more chapters uh, in The Girl Who more Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Yes. Because 
They did. Anyways, okay. I, I would more like more in the all book right, that I'm right. reading. Page Turner, uh, and he jumps quite quickly between uh, between events in the book. You're waving me on here, Paul. You're trying to cut me off for time, and there was one more thing I had to say. About I'm giving the hand roll signal. I'm rolling out here, but uh, uh, what was the last thing I had to say about uh, uh, that? Quick oh, question. I, I, this is when a brand done, new yes. author. This is a brand new author, and like you could say to every brand new author, easy on the description. You know, a, a lot fewer adjectives, please. Right. <laughs> This is the first, first it's, crack it's like at a they book. say the old uh, they, they tell uh, beginning writers uh, show something don't describe show, it don't like, describe it you know show the guy making uh, yeah. breakfast for his kids don't say Greg had five children there was, just there was make it, show him making breakfast for five children and then you can you know there was far too I know much. Greg, you only have two children. It's just an there was far side. too much overwrought. <laughs> there was far too much overwrought description of the book. Okay, and uh, but uh, this is Dean Crawford's bit. first novel. Dean Crawford's first novel. debut. Yeah, and and you're saying Paige Turner and. Should Page I give Turner. it a shot? And, you give know. it a shot. Excellent. I'd love to hear it. Uh, if you read it, Paul, what do you think of it? Excellent. We'll do. All right, guys. I'm bringing a, a book to the table here that I cannot uh, recommend heavily or, or more. Um, it's about the 1893 Chicago's Columbian World Exposition. When this thing happened, it was a huge event. It lasted six months. At the time, uh, the United States had 60 million uh, population and over 27 million people visited this fair in, in those six months. And just to give you a, an idea of how important this World Fair was in history, during the fair, the, uh, they had the first major use of landscape architecture by the pioneer in that field, uh, the first high-profile design of a building by a female architect. Following snacks were invented and created for the fair. Cracker Jack, anybody? Cracker Jack, shredded wheat. That's your name. <laughs> That's right. An alter ego, yes. Juicy fruit gum, Quaker oats. A thing called the hamburger was introduced to America. Trying to outdo the Eiffel Tower by Mr. Eiffel, which had just happened in, in Paris. Uh, a gentleman named George Washington Ferris created the Ferris wheel. Uh, just so, so many th- different... There's hundreds of things in this book that uh, make this World Fair interesting. But that's only half the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that part of the book alone wouldn't make uh, that much of an interesting book for most people. I still probably would have been you know, interested in learning about all this innovation. People, people love history, but it's not a great story. No, so, but th- they add a second true story to this, which yeah. is the story of H.H. H. Holmes. Now, the, the World's Fair was called the White City because all the buildings were all painted white. The story is called The Devil in the White City, and the devil in this case is H.H. H. Holmes, serial killer, probably one of the largest ser- serial killers in history in the United States, Killed over 200 women uh, during this fair, six-month period. During the fair. 200 during ladies. the time of the fair in Chicago. He, um, he was also a con artist, so he, all of his wealth was accrued through... Uh, accrued through uh, scams. Scams. Uh, and then the women would, you know, uh, he would get insurance for his wife, and then she would just disappear, disappear. and change his name, get Make another wife. And eventually he built what would be called the Murder Castle. He designed this basically block-long building... That had retail on the first floor, uh, rooms for women to stay in the second floor. Because at this time, this was the first time, basically, that women were allowed to leave their homes and, and go to a city. It was unheard of for you to leave your home Travel and go somewhere. Right. Travel unaccompanied if you weren't married or betrothed to someone to go to a new city and find a job. But there was so much work as a result of the fair that women had no choice. Like, look, Chicago was sucking and, up yeah, anybody who could work. That's and right. So a lot of women were. Yeah. And this is actually where jobs. we get the term windy city, not because Chicago is particularly windy. Uh, the term windy city comes from um, 
the people of Chicago building up to get the chance to hold this fair, they were competing with New York and, mm-hmm. and, and Boston and other cities and states. The press in, in Chicago was so feverish about this and, and got out there and wrote articles and articles and got, on, you know, got it out so much that people said, these people from Chicago just blowing a lot of wind. <laughs> so that's where the term Windy City comes from. Uh, the story of H.H. H. Holmes, a uh, serial killer, combined with the, all the historic, like you were saying earlier about the uh, history is, is interesting and the facts. It's so much history in this. Uh, it's basically two stories that happened at the same time. They, the only qualm I have about this book is that uh, they never, the two main characters, the guy uh, creating the World Expo and the serial killer never actually meet. So, but the stories happen concurrently, so, so it goes this back is, and forth. This is not fiction. This is not. This is two uh, stories. This uh, is a historical nonfiction novel. that happened simultaneously, same time, 1890s. It was so not even an incredible novel, read. Okay. A little bit hard for me. I'm not too much into the serial killer genre, but uh, you know, we're going to talk to Scott Brick later. We'll see what he think. What you know, what he can tell us about the reading of did it get gruesome? This book. Uh, it doesn't get Stephen King graphic gruesome, okay. but just what they allude to, what happens. I mean, we're talking women and children being killed. Never gets too graphic as far as what happened or, or you know, uh, deep details like, like someone like Stephen King would really get in there and just, you, you know, know, burn your brain the, uh, <laughs> with the, the details. But. I think it was a, uh, a French playwright like in the 1600s that said, if you want drama, torture the women and children. Yes. Well, that's, this is real life drama. And uh, I highly recommend, don't want to spoil the ending, H.H. Uh, H. Holmes and Daniel Burnham never meeting in real life. I understand that they never met in real life, but I think they could have added a little spark of fiction here. Uh, just to, <laughs> even, even a couple of chance meetings. And uh, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio recently bought the rights to this, uh, the, this book. Yeah. And I think when it's adapted, Greg, you're the book, uh, film and television yeah, I was going to ask you. It, I it, think... If, if they do a script for this, I think they should have some, like, you know, Burnham bumps into H.H. H. Holmes or, you know, buys a hot dog in front of some, at least some we passing, gotta, you know. They got to thread it together somehow. You would, you would have them write that fictional encounter in, even if N- not Not so like much of them interacting, or... but they should pass, you know what I mean? Like, every so often in the movie, they, they should pass, at least, and, and be in the same room, just not even interacting with each other. But there could have been, added, they could have added a little bit more, uh, a little da- like a splash of fiction to this. But otherwise, great book. Highly recommend uh, the Audible version. Uh, like I said, read by Scott Brick. I'm going to play a little clip for you from right from the beginning. Don't want to spoil it. Here's just like a minute or two from the beginning of the book. Books on Tape presents Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Read by Scott Brick. Evil's Imminent. A Note. In Chicago at the end of the 19th century, amid the smoke of industry and the clatter of trains, there lived two men, both handsome, both blue-eyed, and both unusually adept at their chosen skills. Each embodied an element of the great dynamic that characterized the rush of America toward the 20th century. One was an architect, the builder of many of America's most important structures, among them the Flatiron Building in New York and Union Station in Washington, D.C., The other was a murderer, one of the most prolific in history and harbinger of an American archetype, the urban serial killer. Although the two never met, at least not formally, their fates were linked by a single, magical event, one largely fallen from modern recollection, but that in its time was considered to possess a transformative power nearly equal to that of the Civil War. 
In the following pages, I tell the story of these men and this event, but I must insert here a notice. However strange or macabre some of the following incidents may seem, this is not a work of fiction. Anything between quotation marks comes from a letter, memoir, or other written document. The action takes place mostly in Chicago, but I beg readers to forgive me for the occasional lurch across state lines, as when the staunch, grief-struck Detective Geyer enters that last awful cellar. I beg forbearance, too, for the occasional side journey demanded by the story, including excursions into the medical acquisition of corpses and the correct use of Black Prince geraniums in an Olmstedian landscape. Beneath the gore and smoke and loam, this book is about the evanescence of life and why some men choose to fill their brief allotment of time engaging the impossible, others in the manufacture of sorrow. In the end, it is a story of the ineluctable conflict between good and evil, daylight and darkness, the white city and the black. And you can get that book for free if you'd like just by going to paulthebookguy.com slash audible and signing up for a free trial with Audible. And the book, the, the book coming to uh, film is uh, slated for release in 2013. Nice. Doesn't doesn't have anybody other no than... No casting yet? No or? casting, no director, no writer. You know who I'd like to see playing H.H. H. Holmes? Scott Brick. Scott oh, Brick. Yeah. <laughs> we might as well just get right into NPR Books, uh, Thursday, August 11th. Uh, they released a new list of top 100 science fiction and fantasy books. I mean, every, what, every few years these lists come out, right? So right. from NPR's own site, more than 5,000 um, nominated, 60,000 voted, and uh, the results are in. So this is a, a current list of the top science fiction fantasy, not including horror. So okay. you guys have had a chance to look at this okay. list, haven't you? Yes, I have. It's really interesting. The uh, classic, you know, I mean, our listeners are obviously want to know, number one, Lord of the Rings. Number two, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> Hold it. Hold All on right. to it, Greg. Hold on to it. Uh, number three, Ender's Game. Uh, number four, The Dune Chronicles. And number five, surprise, surprise, Song of Fire and Ice series. So, lads, thoughts? Greg, I know you want to chip on uh, Hitchhiker's just, Guide. I, I'm biting at the... I, I really want to take... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'd like to take that down a couple notches. How far? How far down the list do you want to put it? I'm not going to put it down as far as most people would say, but here's what I have to say. And I've, I've been waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to discuss the Hitchhiker's Guide and my philosophy about it. But your moment is now. I I read it when I was younger. It was fantastic. I couldn't put it down. I tried to reread it in my adulthood, and I found it. Less than appetizing. I couldn't get through it the, the second time. The same can be said for Tolkien as well. And it still deserves the number one spot. <sighs> I'm not so sure. I, I just don't have the fondness for that book that I did when I was younger. Okay, you don't have the fondness. Tolkien stands up. Uh, I don't know if it should be number one or not. I think Tolkien's Tolkien the only is... reason that all those vans are driving around the 80s with the fantasy pictures on the side. It really started the started whole, everything. The whole I think, fantasy movement. I think Douglas Adams uh, deserves its position, perhaps, but it, definitely inside the top five. I'll, I'll give it top five. Number two of all time, I... Paul, not you, in, not Paul, in my you, book. You've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of debating two, three. Uh, the, you know what? 
this is uh, uh, 60,000 people uh, yes. were sifted through a computertronic machine that said this is number two. So <laughs> computer, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> an electromatic uh, bookinator. Uh, decided that it's number two. So there it is. And right behind it, one of my favorite science fiction books, Ender's Game. Uh, I, I've read it, I think, twice and listened to um, Scott Brick read the series. Uh, he was part of a multi... Uh, I have not read this book. And this, oh, you got the Ender series is hey, fantastic. Out of, this, out of this list, this is one of the things we have to talk about. Out of this list, you know, the one book that I have to now read... Uh, my pick is Ender's Game. I've, I'll I've give you a basic premise it. of this. Uh, it's, it is far future. Uh, children, uh, and, and this, this becomes closer to reality today. It's almost like Orson Scott Card sort of predicted the future of warfare. Um, small children, and some of their dialogue is pretty advanced, but these are precocious, uh, very intelligent children, are trained in video games, which at the time was you know, in its infancy. Uh, he predicted that these children were going to be trained to to fight these wars and, and be basically the tactical minds behind oh, all this me, weaponry. Tell me this is better than The Last Starfighter. Oh, yeah, <laughs> much better, much better. Um, and like I said, it, it actually, he was pre- predicating what's happening now, which is you have literally 18-year-olds showing up to control drones. So this is, this is my book pick out of the list, the one that I want to read. Greg, you got I, one? Definitely, go for it. You know, I was going to say that uh, I haven't read The Dune Chronicles. And uh, ah. so, so there you go. From this book, from this list, I pledge to now read the Dune Chronicles. It's something that that's on my list. There of things there's to there's do. some classics up there as well. 1984 by uh, George Orwell. Well, Fahrenheit for, uh, for, for 451. 451. Sorry, 451. 451. Uh, the Foundation Trilogy by Asimov. So, what about you, Paul? What are you going to read out of this list now that you've seen it? You, you know what? Uh, I'm looking at it. And I'm looking at number ten, and I really I love science fiction, but I've never gotten into Neil Gaiman's work. Neil Gaiman is large, figures large he, in this apparently. list, apparently. And you know what? He's oh, huge in, in England. He has a big following in England. And I recently, uh, last season of Doctor Who, big surprise, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Uh, I saw Doctor Who Confidential, which is the Doctor Who show about making Doctor Who, and uh, they featured Neil Gaiman. And, and it was such a big deal that he, was, uh, he had written this episode that I started looking into him. And I am going to get into some, uh, some game and work in the future. I, I just want to point out a couple things here. First off, like I said, Hitchhiker's Guide, in my opinion, too high. Got it. All right. One that I felt was too low. Yes. All right. And I'm going to go right down to the bottom of the list here. And I'm going to pick out number 88. That's the Thrawn series for the Star Wars. <laughs> now, come on. I read them. And, and I'm a big right. Star Wars fan. I read the... the the uh, Timothy Zahn Thrawn series and I still say that and I'm sure there's lots of Star Wars fans out there who would say that that's the three books that should have been made into the movies instead of one, two, and three instead of the crap we got instead of the crap that we got I'll, I'll admit that and, I like and you know what I have to admit I haven't read The Princess Bride but here's my pick boys Princess Bride is on 11 in this Number list 11 and yes. beneath it let me give you just a little hint of what's beneath Princess Bride Animal Farm by George Orwell no Watchmen, the graphic novel. Okay, that's way I, too high as it I is. Robot by Asimov. <laughs> uh, Stranger in a Strange Land Stranger by Heinlein. Stranger in a Strange Land should be in the top five. Good Christ. Uh, Frankenstein yeah. by, by Shelley. Are you kidding me? And how did, yeah. I thought they, said, I thought they Kurt, said no horror. Kurt Vonnegut. This is, this I thought is, you said no, no horror. It says no horror. I don't think... Um, 
I don't think Frankenstein classifies as a horror technically. But but again, these lists come out all the time. And this is, this is democracy it's at its Victorian best. Victorian Gothic science fiction. <laughs> well, and, and let's just talk. You, you know, we had the, the conversation. Hairs, all right, but. we discussed the the graphic novels at one point in time. That yeah, hit the yeah. editing floor, but. Watchmen. Watchmen. We're on the same Watchmen. page here. Okay, Watchmen, Watchmen is, a, is a great book. A I read book. it. I loved it. But number come 15. On, number 15, Above Snow Crash. Oh, I know. I know. There's, there's of one Snow here. Crash. You know what? You're, we were talking about Stephen King. Uh, number 25 on this list, which for me is just an arbitrary. You know what? This is democracy at its best, okay? Uh, it's chosen by the people. It's democracy an arbitrary mediocrity. List. Right. Yes. Uh, the Stand by Stephen King, number 25 on the list there, if you're looking. Yeah, uh, yeah, Chris, I'm on I got, it. Yeah. Should be in the top. Uh, twenty. Well, then, top ten. Then you even. skip. Then you skip twenty three. You know, the Dark Tower. Yeah, yeah absolutely. See, I think so you're pushing things. You're pushing things by pushing. Uh, again, nitpicking this list. Look, sixty thousand people voted. There it is. There might be one guy that yeah. voted ten thousand times. You know, he might be a computer <laughs> hacker. You know, a DDoS attack on uh, NPR's I'm website. I'm sure NPR can figure that kind of business. And you know, out. while we're on the talk, topic of uh, NPR, I just wanted to mention to everybody. A lot of people keep asking, why is the podcast called Paul the Book Guy? And they, they probably think that, you know, I walk around wearing white gloves and people open the door of the, the limousine for me. Uh, the, the case is, actually is, we uh, initially, the, the name of this podcast was Book Guys. Uh, Jeff Smith had already completed the, the theme song. The, the Book Guys And podcast. it was Book Guys, and it was just book the guys. same as it is now. It only said Book Guys, Book Guys, Book Guys. And I went to get bookguys.com, and I asked the nice people who, who ran it and said, you know, would you mind selling your or giving us your your unused URL? And it turns out NPR had a uh, book show for a long time on NPR radio called Book Guys. So it's trademarked. We couldn't have it. So I had to call Jeff Smith at the last minute. Uh, you know, call, you know, email him, uh, Jeff. I know you, we the need song's a new theme done. Song quick. We need a new theme song quick. And he said, well, Paul the Book Guy's a big mouthful. Because <laughs> every time he says Paul the Book Guy in the theme song, it should have been just Book Guys, right? And thank you so much, Jeff. He came through at the last minute and there you go. And we already had the site, paulthebookguy.com. You know. I liked the original. When he did the original uh, jingle for us, it was really Batman-y. Yeah, it, was, guy, it was much more Batman-y. Yeah. But, but that's the case there. But they're so, really nice guys. The guys I spoke to, the, the book guys, uh, did want to come on the show. And we'll have them on in, in the future and, and talk to them about their run uh, on NPR. Uh, no, no harsh feelings. They're really great about the whole thing. But trademark's a trademark. So... We that's why name. it's called yeah. Paul the Book Guy, that's folks. That's why it's, so it's, you know, not a, it's not a dictatorship. <laughs> right. We are kind of three guys. We're equal we are three guys who like and, books. Uh, you know, you know, we're, we're not going to say we're book guys, but I'm Paul the Book Guy. I'm Chris the Book Guy. I am Greg the Book Guy. There you go. But we're not collectively the book guys. That's no. trademark NPR. No, we can't be that. <laughs> United States National Treasure. Our National Treasure. So back to the issue at hand here. Greg, did we get your pick from the list? We did. It was the uh, it was yeah, the, uh, the Dune series. The Dune series. Paul, you were going to take the. I'm going to get into Neil Neil Gaiman. A lot of people like him. I just haven't got into it. Uh, he has an extensive library. What about you, Chris? One that's too high, one that's too low, and the one you're going to read off. Okay, this the list. one I'm going to read off the list is going to be Ender's Game. Uh, I would. I'm just cruising through the list at the moment. If I could please beg you guys to read some Vonnegut at some point. If you Sorry, Kristen Trapp, but we're going to put a because everyone's sitting there about this magical list we're talking about. We're going to put a li- the uh, link list will be up. Paulthebookguy.com slash show notes slash 007.html. It'll be there. Okay, here we go. Google's too. Here we go. My, my pick for uh, too high on the list. <laughs> I'm going to go all the way down to number 46. Number 46 is too high. It's, four, it's too <laughs> oh, really? high. Really? Okay. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien, The Cimmerillion. This book is boring and long. Yeah, and I gotta say, how it even made the list? Trying. I don't even know. Yeah, right. 
grass growing watching yeah i think just there by the name so that's my that's my way too way it's, too it's, high it, it reads folks it reads like the bible uh you know joseph begat uh henry oh. and henry begat it's just it's too awful. much background but, lore but no more than the than 53 cryptonomicron by steel neil stevenson like that right. that was just you I'm slogged sorry. through it. I, I only, I've only read Snow it was, Crash. It was next to unreadable. Wow. Snow Crash was fantastic. Snow, Snow Crash, Crash was, was awesome. It got, yeah. Hold on. It slogged close to the end, too. And they started getting into the, the ancients. and the, uh, That was got a little bizarre for me, but still a fantastic book. But Cryptonomicron was... Yeah, yeah that bad. That's, eh? as, that's as good as I can... And as far as the, the book that's too low, like I think, um, you know, I think Clockwork Orange is too low. And I think uh, I'm just going through this now, and low. even Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger at 70 should definitely be higher than, you know, uh, there's so many it could be higher than. But I, I thought you would be pulling for the Dark Tower series at 23. Well, that's I thought fine. You, would you know, again, up. like I said, it, it, it's, it's a democracy at its finest, 60,000 people registered their votes. There's this. You know what? This is a great list to go through, folks. Go to the, go to the site or Google for the NPR list top 100 science fiction fantasy books you will definitely find something good to read on this list uh thanks so much if for bringing it to for the nothing table. else it's, go through the list and yeah. just find a new book to read yeah it's a great list just to find a book and tell us what you picked please i'd oh, love yeah. to know books on film and television greg what do you have for us today game of thrones as every week as every week. As every week. We're going to start off with Game of Thrones, and I'm going to tell you that there is so much Game of Thrones casting news that I just don't want to discuss it with you this week. We're going to have to ask our constant listeners to check the website. I have been going through all of the casting news diligently all week long, posting it to the Paul the Book Guy, pod, uh, Paul the Book Guy website. Go there. Look for the tag Game of Thrones. Look for all of our work. It's, uh, you'll enjoy it. If it's most of these people you've never heard of anyways, so just go and read it and it'll be fun. What's next? I am going to what's next. I've got some Stephen King news. You guys know that, uh, his latest book is not released yet. 11, 22, Okay. So let's discuss and that one. Eight mile. Eight mile. That's right. Right. Yep. 11, 22, Not yet out in stores. Already been optioned for. A movie. Eleven twenty two sixty three references references the date that uh, JFK was assassinated. assassinated. Also the uh, the date that the first episode of Doctor Who aired on BBC. Oh, you're such a nerd! I, just, I had to get that Doctor Who reference in there. All right. <laughs> so the book is a thousand pages and uh, not released yet. It's not going to be released till November eighth, and it's already been optioned uh, by John Jonathan Demi. Okay. Who won an Oscar for Silence of the Lambs? This could be good. So it could be good. Jonathan Demi was in Silence of the Lambs? Or did he just he produce it? He was the filmmaker. He was the director. He was the director. Yes. There you go. So he is going to be bringing that to the silver screen. In related Stephen King news, another one of his projects, The Stand, one of our favorites, one of my favorites. Yes. One of my favorites. One of these days uh, you'll have to read some Stephen King. Uh, we keep saying that. Now, I'm going to say that, again, this, this is my favorite Stephen King. This has been optioned now for, uh, sorry, it's, it's in production. It's being brought to us by David Yates and Stephen Cloves. Is Molly Ringwald in this one? No. Uh, again, reference to, of course, the miniseries that was uh, in 1994, starring Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald, and our favorite actor from Bubba Hotep, 
uh, Ozzie Davis, who the black black JFK, black JFK, black JFK. <laughs> right? So it all it all ties in. It they put a bag around. of sand in my they head. Put a bag of sand in my head, right? So you got Bubba you got a black JFK in this story. The last story I believe was the you know the eleven twenty two. Brilliant. Brilliant. Nice. Am I tying Brilliant. these things in? Come on, this guys. Is perfect. I'm doing perfect. the research here. Nice. So that's going to be bring to you guys might know uh, David Yates and Stephen Cloves. They did a, a small little successful series of movies called Harry Potter. Right, which I, I believe they brought I think very well to the silver right. screen. I think they did well. So this is three books that uh, could end up as three movies. Fantastic. All right, so that's a post-apocalyptic movie. Two factions going to get it on for the future of humanity. Uh, you, you would like – that's why I keep recommending Stand for one. you. It's the end Stand. of the world novel. Uh, could be a good Stephen King primer for you. It doesn't drag on like the Dark Tower. It doesn't drag on like the Dark Tower. Okay. Stand <laughs> okay. it will be. Stand it will All be. All right. I'm going to do the Poison Kitchen next. Now, the Poison Kitchen is the uh, euphemism nickname that um, former uh, Reichsfuhrer – what Adolf, is das? Reichsführer. Reichsführer Adolf Hitler gave for the Batman. Yeah. It was his nickname. I'm for not even going to say. I was going to do all my. Oh, you think he's just mis- misunderstood? Don't, I am, no, don't, no, no, I'm, not I funny. am reading. Not funny. I, not funny. I am reading the rise and fall of the Third Reich just out of historical interest, and you know, not a nice guy, really. No, you can't say enough. Um, so basically, he uh, poison. He 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 coined the phrase. The Poison Kitchen for the uh, Badish, the Muncher Post, which was a newspaper that was anti-Hitler prior to his ascension to power, and it was a shutdown when he came, became the when he combined Chancellor and President. The first thing he did when he combined the power was take over the media. Right, right. But this was one of his main targets, obviously. So now, what this is, this is going to be brought to film. This is one chapter. They're going to make a movie out of one chapter from the book Explaining Hitler by Ron Rosenbaum. And it's going to be brought to us by a gentleman by the name of Robert Shevinky is going to be the director. It wasn't he, uh, didn't he play accordion with uh, Eugene Levy? Nice. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Come on, Come on. two, three, four. Cabbage rolls and coffee. Mm-mm, good. <laughs> two, three, four. So good. I would also like to bring to your attention a small book series called The Lincoln Lawyer, written okay. by Michael Connolly. Now, this summer, big blockbuster movie. Big blockbuster movie, $50 million domestically. Wow. Starring Michael McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey. So for fans oh, of the Lincoln Lawyer, this is uh, time gonna, to go to the movies. Going to get in trouble for my wife for getting his name wrong. Um, oh, Is he on her free list? No, but true, true story. True story. My daughter Ava was named for a Michael McConaughey, McConaughey movie, a Clive Cussler movie, in fact. Okay. Ava, Ava was named for for the character in Sahara. Nice. There you go. Clive Cussler being one of your dad's favorite uh, authors. My dad's favorite. Yes. We have a chair for him right here. If he ever decides he wants to listen to the podcast or come and sit down and talk about Clive That's Cussler. That's right. <laughs> I think he's read all of Cussler. I, I think he'd fit in with the rum drinking with us. I think he'd be right he'd, in there. He'd be right up there. It would be nice to have somebody to keep our drinks fresh while we're recording. okay so the lincoln lawyer it's a book it's a movie now it's going to be a tv show now it's going to be a tv show it's going to be a tv show now abc has ordered a pilot and uh, speculation has it that they've they've ordered the pilot to combat nbc 
who are bringing to television and other lawyers saga other lawyers uh, the something 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 it's Grisham, be John Grisham Grisham firm Ooh, okay. which, yeah, which so. one of his dozen books the firm the firm the okay. firm John Grisham, you know, the firm but, but knowing in, NBC that they'll they'll do four episodes and cancel it Yes, this is typical gonna, NBC. This is, why, this is why you're losing NBC. They'll do a season and a half and then cancel. Hey, it. Right. Unless like unless HBO is doing it, who's watching it? Right. Ooh. Ooh. And remember, folks, turn off your television. Turn off. Your it's making television. you stupid. Read a book. Turn off your television. Yeah. Hey, read a book. A voicemail from Eric Lavery. Hey, Greg. Just wanted to give everyone a heads up that the fourth and final book of The Inheritance Cycle by Christopher Paolini is due out on November 8, 2011. If you haven't had time to read the first three installments, which were Aragon, Eldest, and Brissinger, I suggest that you run out and grab those now and get caught up before Inheritance, the fourth novel, is released on November 8th. And please, don't go watch the movie. Hi, I'm Scott Johnson, host of the Frog Pants Studios Network, and you're listening to Paul the Book Guy. Hello, this is Harlan Zink from RadioArchives.com with this week's edition of Other Voices, Other Views, recent reviews featured at PaulTheBookGuy.com. Today, I'm happy to share with you a review written by Phyllis Johnson. Phyllis writes, One of my favorite books is titled Write It Down, Make It Happen, written by Henriette Ann Clouser. Too many times, we randomly think of goals we want to accomplish, get busy, and then the thought is gone. Poof. One important thing to remember is that by writing these thoughts down, it's like sending up a prayer. Finding this book was like finding a treasure. Although my already highly intuited self has had me write characters into stories that I would actually meet in real life, name and all, this book shows that the very act of writing things down helps bring things to you. Again, like an answered prayer. It's like sending your wants to the universe, or rather, to God. She recommends listing wants, whether it's for a future mate or the house of your dreams. When you're recording things you want from the world, Henriette says it's moving from fantasy to commitment levels. Writing it down makes it more concrete. Once you see that goal accomplished, write down another, and another. Following this process, she depends on accountability to a commitment group with her return-and-report mentality. Reading this book is genuinely positive experience, one sure to leave you looking for the best in people and situations. She emphasizes the importance in keeping an affirmations journal, recording compliments, and nice things people say to you. It's about keeping your chin up, always open to opportunities, recording what you desire, the best the world has to offer, while you anticipate the results. Write it down, make it happen. Everyone needs a copy on their bookshelf. It's published by Fireside Books. This has been Other Voices, Other Views, a series of reviews recently featured at paulthebookguy.com. And this has been Harlan Zink from radioarchives.com. Be sure to listen to the next Paul the Book Guy podcast when I'll be back with more news, views, and reviews. Thanks for listening. 
Born in California, Scott Brigg is an actor, writer, and one of the best audiobook narrators in the business. He started doing audiobooks in 2000 and since then has made huge waves in the audiobook business. In 2004, the Wall Street Journal named him a golden voice. In 2007, he was Publisher Weekly's Narrator of the Year. He has won over 40 earphone awards and the Audi Award for his work on 2003's Dune, the Butlerian Jihad. And this very same Scott Brick, harbinger of worldwide audiobook domination, joins us now live from California. Hello, Scott. Hey, how are you? <laughs> how you doing? doing how you doing, good. Scott? This, me is, this is Chris, the book guy. Hey there. Hi, Scott. It's Greg, the book guy. And of Thanks course, for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad that you could join us. Uh, first question, Scott. Last time uh, you and I communicated was for a, a small interview for the PaulTheBookGuy.com website. And uh, you mentioned you were working on a novel. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how's that coming along? Well, and, bless you for asking. Uh, the crazy thing is, I actually was just working on it until about 1 a.m. last night. Um, I have got about 60 more. Pa- I'm rewriting the last 50 or 60 pages. Uh, I'll have the second draft done, uh, at which point I'm going to send it out to my technical advisors. I've got a, um, I made a great connection through, uh, through a website. Um, uh, I, I do the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever by Stephen R. Donaldson. And, uh, at an event where, uh, a number of us from, uh, uh, a Donaldson website got together uh, I met a, a, a friend who's, who's uh, a new friend. He lives in uh, Queensland, Australia, and uh, is a criminal psychologist. He works at a prison at a correctional facility uh, with just just the worst of the worst, these mass murderers <laughs> and serial killers and such. And, and there, there's a, a serial killer aspect to the work that I'm, to the, to the book that I'm working on. This is your technical advisor. Someone <laughs> whose business is psychopaths. Uh, yes, absolutely. We're, we're dying to know. What is the book? Could you give us a bit of a tease? What is, what is the book about? Yes, absolutely. There is a uh, real-life event that took place in this little small town in Connecticut. Uh, took place long ago. Uh, a man killed his uh, uh, wife and family. A very 20th century crime. But it happened long, long ago. And in this same small town in modern day, it's, it's not a period piece. It's a modern-day thriller. Um, uh, a killer is striking the same date at the same location every year. They're they're trying to figure out what the new has to do with the old. It's um, it's a circumstance where uh, uh, there's a very bizarre brain disorder where you can be blind and not know it. And uh, a witness who who has this condition, he's physically blind, but he's unaware that he's blind. Um, he quote unquote witnesses a crime, and nobody believes him because of the condition, but the woman who's investigating it knows he's telling the truth because what he claims to have seen was her husband being killed, but her husband was killed three years ago. So the question is, who's telling the truth and why, and how is it all connected? We were just talking about uh, thrillers a little bit earlier in the show, uh, and one of the the key things about thrillers is education. Uh, You have to learn something. Very much so. I have gone through such a learning curve on this book. I've got, uh, so far, four technical advisors, and I'm so grateful for all of them. The police chief in this little small town has served as my primary advisor. He's been invaluable. has given me all the procedural help that I needed, as well as just all the nuts and bolts details about what life is like and investigating a crime in a, in a, in a community like this. Uh, a woman at the local historical society has helped me out with all the history. Uh, the coroner, 
for the state of Connecticut, a guy named Wayne Carver, if you can believe it, coroner named Carver. Um, <laughs> so one of life's small ironies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, it's extraordinary. I asked him about the irony of it, and he just laughed and said, the guy I took over from, his last name was Gross. So, um, it's good <laughs> to know they have a sense of humor. Uh, he, gave me a, uh, he gave me an interview after I had already finished the book, after, well, after I had written the first draft. And I found out that despite all the research I had done, all the learning I had done in order to get everything right into, into forensic science, uh, it didn't apply for the state of Connecticut because their soil is so much different than the rest of the Union. So uh, there's really there's nothing like going to the source. And when somebody is at the source is generous enough to share their time, I, 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 can't, even, I can't even describe how, how valuable it is, how grateful I am. Your excitement's just spilling over here. We're all getting pretty charged up. We're hoping that we're going to get uh, advanced copies here when, it, uh, when it's finally ready. <laughs> I am happy to provide those. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. You know, uh, the serial killer aspect of that reminded me of uh, the book I've been reading uh, for the last couple of days or listening to that you, uh, you narrated, Devil in the White City. Uh, and I, oh. just, I just wanted to, to tell you that uh, I know that Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, bought the film rights last year. Yes. And uh, I just want to say, I want to see him as um, as Burnham, and I want to see you play the part of H.H. H. Holmes on, on the big screen. <laughs> that would be well, fantastic. Well, I your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to put up a blog post and, and try to see if we can get it over to Leo and see if he, you know, he can see it the same way I am. We can start well, again, bless you. you. Bless you for the idea. <laughs> I would, I would, I'd love to be involved with that in any way possible because um, very few books have stuck with me the way that that book did. Um, uh, it, it was a hard book to do because anything that, uh, with such a grisly topic yes. is, is kind of hard to live with for a week of your life. But um, now, so speak, so Speaking of that, Scott, uh, I know that you're reading, uh, you said you were reading Helter Skelter now. And, uh, how does that... a, I'm, on a, I'm on a break from the studio right now. That's what I'm working on uh, as we speak. Yeah. I, I got a message for you from uh, Gabrielle Decur. She she says yes, she's, yes. yes she she sent me a little message on Twitter to pass along to you right now. Uh, she says she's very proud to have been your first director. That is. She also says if you get scared at night while reading Helter Skelter, just give her a call. She'll help you out. <laughs> Gabrielle is she she uh, she directed me in my very first project I ever did. It was a short story for Dev Audio, and uh, she's the best. I've worked with her so many times. This woman is. Uh, uh, God, the, the, the knowledge this woman has. Her father was an award-winning uh, uh, filmmaker, um, uh, production designer uh, on so many classic films. And she speaks fluent Italian when, when we did the Godfather sequels. She was my director on that. And uh, uh, this woman is just absolutely extraordinarily talented. And she's just so much fun to be around. And she offered to help me out with uh, Helter Skelter. She said, we can just sit and get creeped out together. <laughs> I said, I would be happy to do that. It's, it's a very difficult book to read. Um, you kind of have to approach it from a uh, kind of a hands-off uh, point of view emotionally. I, I have to read it very, very cold, very dry. I mean, right. you tend to do that with nonfiction anyway because there's no characters. You're not doing a character voice. You're not doing accents. You're not doing anything like that. It's, it's the author telling the story, and the author is Vincent Bugliosi, the primary author. Uh, was, he's, um, he, he prosecuted that case, so obviously he is the source. He knows everything about the Manson case. But the things that he's describing are so horrific, just right. absolutely abhorrent human behavior. It's not, it's inhuman behavior. And 
there's only so detached that I can be. Um, there's only so much detachment I can, I can, I can maintain, I guess I should say. And, uh, it's, it's tough. Um, I'm working on it with uh, my buddy Kitch. He's my engineer on this project. And his wife actually was years ago played one of the primary characters, uh, Susan Atkins. She's a family member who initially started spilling the beans about Manson after she was arrested. And she had played Susan, uh, Kitch's wife had played Susan in a, uh, uh, some video production of the story. And uh, so she was actually, she's my researcher for my audiobooks. And so she had all of this research that she'd already done. She already knew so many of the pronunciations and such. Um, uh, I was about to say that uh, this production has been kind of all in the family, although that would be kind of a bad joke. But uh, um, we've just been at times working on this book and sailing along and I'll, I'll think, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. This is not affecting me. And, and then just something particularly horrific will come out of the, the author's mouth or I should say Manson's mouth. And, and, and at that point, do you, do you take a break at that point? You have to, because, um, you can't, I can, I can deal with horrible things. I've, I've had to read horrible things in my career, horrible, not in terms of, of course, the, quality of the book, but just man's inhumanity to man. And there's only so much of that that you can deal with. You have to process it. You have to do it however you need to. If that means, I mean, I have friends of mine, narrators, who will blow off steam by going off and playing a video game for a while or going and playing with their kids, you know, laughing and just spending uh, loving time with their wife and family. Um, uh, however you need to process, you absolutely need to process it. Uh, when working on a book like this. Scott, uh, this is Greg. What's the lead time on something like this? When when you're reading Helter Skelter and when you're done, how soon after you're done will it be released? Well, it depends. It depends on the publisher. Most of the books that I'm doing are, are being done ahead of publication. Uh, they're, they're being done to be released simultaneously with the print publication. So usually, by the time I'm given a copy of it, uh, it's usually about three months before the book comes out. Um, I'm given a, a while to, you know, a week, a month, whatever the lead time happens to be, time to prepare it. Um, the producer, of course, does most of the preparation, finds, you know, does the, the, the heavy lifting, does the pronunciation research and such. And then after I record it, then it goes to editing and uh, for processing to have it... Uh, have it broken up into track lengths so that it, putting it on the Red Book standard so it would meet all the criteria for all the major publishers to, 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 to fit onto a CD, a typical length of a CD, you know, 75 minutes, that kind of thing. All that is done, and then it's made available both as a hard copy and as a download. So it's usually about a three-month process. This particular book is already, what is it, almost 40 years old, uh, and Audible.com is publishing this book directly. And they're all about digital downloads. So uh, I honestly don't know. They haven't given me a release date. But right. I would be surprised if it took more than a month between the time when I finish, which will be in about a week from now. I think I'll, I'm turning in the book on August 19th. It might be within the month. Uh, don't quote me on that, but, but it, it could be. I, <laughs> I personally, when I, when I sell things up on my website, um, I've licensed certain of my books. I mentioned I do the Thomas Covenant books by Stephen R. Donaldson. The moment I have those finished in terms of being proofed and edited and uh, all of the sound taken care of, which is usually within a few days of, uh, within a few days of, of when I get done recording it, it's up for sale that night. 
Wow. So that, that's, that's, that's the wow. kind of yeah. advance that technology has given us, yeah. Now, now, a quick question, Scott. How long, like, for example, for a 20-hour audiobook, how long does that take you to actually, uh, in, in time, to read? Anywhere between 90 minutes and two hours. <laughs> Sometimes longer. Um, uh, if, if, it's a, if it's a novel, which tends to, those tend to be the easiest books to work on just in, in terms of, you know, you get into a, a flow. You, you, you get lost in the narrative, you get lost in the characters, and you really just kind of flow. Something like that might take me 90 minutes to do 60 minutes of finished okay, recording. Okay, so about one and a half times what the... the, the That's usually length. like the low end, but it, it, could, it could be anywhere from, you know, from that to two hours. Typically, you want to give yourself at least two hours to record one hour's worth of, of finished product. But other books that are more... Mm, technically dense for whatever reason. Maybe it's a nonfiction title. Maybe it's a fiction title, but something like the Dune series, which has, my God, I've done every book in the series. There are almost 20 of the books now, and I've lost track. We're at a few thousand words that I have to keep track of in my audio glossary. Um, words that were completely made up and have very, very precise pronunciations. I have to double-check myself constantly on a series like that so that might take me two and a half hours or, or more to do an, an hour's worth of recording nice now, now not not judging on quality of the book but uh, what what reading was more fun for you to do now i'm not asking you to pick favorites yeah. but uh the, i'm the sorry read. did you mean uh, in terms of uh, uh my work reading or my pleasure reading your your work reading your work reading. my work reading what's most fun um i gotta be honest i i like the hard books and, and so that could mean, in terms of a genre, it's hard to track it down. I like books that take a lot of work because I learn a lot when I'm doing those. Um, Helter Skelter is fascinating, and it's taking me longer because, you know, I have to keep checking my reports, uh, uh, my pronunciation guides. Um, the research was a lot more extensive. You know, I have to hire a researcher to do that work for me if I'm producing it myself. But I also love the Dune series because it takes so much work. And I think because I'm such a science fiction fan, me personally, Scott Brick. Join the club, Scott. <laughs> the, the book guy, exactly. Um, first and foremost, I'm a fan of books and specifically of, of science fiction. So, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm getting Brian Herbert. Frank right. Herbert's son. <laughs> Orson He's Scott fax- Card, you've got Yeah. The Brian top. was faxing me at, at one point. Brian faxed me over his father Frank's original notes for the pronunciation of Dune. And I'm sorry, I'm seeing these pages come out of the fax machine, and I'm a, a giddy little schoolboy. I'm running around going, woohoo, look at me, this is the coolest job in the world. And, you know, those take a lot of time and effort, but I just feel like we're giving something extra to the reader, to the listener, I should say, that, that perhaps the reader of the print version wouldn't experience. And, and it's not to say that one is any better than the other, because they're not. They're, it's all about the author's words. Yes. And that's whether you're reading the print version, the, the dead tree version, or listening to the audio. But when we're doing the audiobook for Dune, let's say, it was the first time that Every pronunciation in that book, and in the original volume, there were 498 words, and I know that because I made up the spreadsheet, right. 498 words and phrases that appeared in no language on earth that were completely made well, up by Sci-fi has got to be tough because of that. I mean, all the words that don't exist, and you don't want to mispronounce the, them, right? That's why you stay away from Star Trek books, right? Absolutely. You can't mispronounce those words. But again, they had never been done, quote-unquote, 
officially. The movies had always gotten them wrong. Um, uh, the, the TV series had tried uh, very, very, uh, very, very hard. They had, done, they had done a great job in being true to Frank's original vision, whereas the, the, the David Lynch film didn't. But nevertheless, the, uh, the, the miniseries didn't mention all four, 498 words. I, it was my responsibility, my, my pleasure, my, my blessing to be able to do them all for the first time, officially, as Frank wanted them done. And for all the people who've been arguing for years, should it be Harkonnen or Harkonnen? You know, those questions were finally answered after being asked for 30 or 40 years. We were finally able to give a definitive answer. And so because it took so much work and so much effort, I was thrilled. I, I thought we're giving something extra to the, to the listener that... You know, that maybe uh, other, 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 other people who've read it, the print version hadn't experienced. You did a fantastic job with that series. Scott, Chris here. Uh, how, did, uh, how did the audiobook business come upon you? Was this uh, something that you uh, had in the back of your mind, something that you uh, wanted to pursue, or did this sort of spring, out, spring on you out of nowhere? It, it, both. God, yeah, easy answer, both. Uh, for years after I got out of UCLA, the theater department, it's, I had it's been a, telling It's a young agent, business. Well, it is, and it isn't. It's, it's young in the sense that it's, it's really breaking wide uh, at the moment, certainly mm-hmm. in the last 10 years. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, uh, it's become huge given the proliferation of iPods and iPads, Absolutely. and and the more people commute for, you know, uh, for a living. Uh, that's certainly caused the industry to break wide, but, but uh, Helen Keller founded something called the American Foundation for the Blind about 100 years ago, I want to say it was, and they actually, AFB, Experimented with recording books back really? in the 1930s. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and usually you had to be a member of the NLS, the Service for the Blind, mm-hmm. in order to take advantage of that. But even in the 1950s, Cad, uh, Cadman Records and uh, uh, Listening Library, which is now part of Random House, Tim Ditlow, the man who um, he produced all of the Harry Potter audiobooks, his father founded Listening Library, mm-hmm. and they made a point of going to these authors, uh, famous authors, uh, and asking them to read their book aloud on records. And, uh, um, and how did you come into this? Well, I, I wanted to do it. I, I, I loved audiobooks because, to me, it's the closest thing to old-time radio that we still have. It's very simple, very pure storytelling. There's just... So it's the storytelling that really is what you want to do. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's why I became an actor. I want yeah. to tell stories. And I also loved old-time radio, so I said, I told my agent, please find me this work, but she didn't know how, because it's not, you know, I have an acting agent, and it's not the acting business. It's the publishing business. They just hire actors. So 10 years, I, I was frustrated because I couldn't get the work, but finally... Um, uh, in 1999, uh, a buddy of mine was working for uh, a company, Dove Audio. That's where Gabrielle DeQueer was, was working, uh, you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, and Stefan Rudnicki, her partner, uh, were essentially heading up the, I believe Stefan was the executive producer there at the time. Uh, I was uh, granted an audition with them. They liked what they heard. They brought me in to do two short stories. I worked with Gabrielle that day. And... On my very first day in the recording studio, working on my very first short story, there was a man there named Dan Musselman, who, whose last day it was there at Dove that day. And he was leaving to go to work for Books on Tape, which is now part of Random House. 
and he was making a studio for them up in Los Angeles and was going to essentially revamp their business and uh, kind of bring him into the 21st century. And he said, I'm leaving here today, and I'm going to need readers pretty soon. He gives me his card and says, why don't you come read for me sometime? Well, within a year, Dove had sadly gone bankrupt, but I managed to do about eight or ten projects for them before they went. And uh, But Dan Musselman of Books on Tape kind of made me his go-to guy. And before I knew it, I was working every day for, for him. I, I, for him alone, I think I've done almost 400 titles. I've done more than 600 titles now. If it wasn't for Dan, literally, I wouldn't have a career. That's that's a really good story. Scott, we've uh, just previously been talking about a recently disclosed list. Uh, The NPR just released their top 100 science fiction and fantasy novels of all time. And you've had the fortunate opportunity of being the narrator of three of the top 10. Uh, Ender's Game, Fahrenheit 451, and The Dune Chronicles. I was wondering if you could put those in order of your preference and and discuss how you feel being a, a part of that list. I, uh, it's so funny because I work with words, and yet I don't know if I have the words to describe what an honor it was to be asked to do all three of those books. I, I can't I can't even describe because again, I'm coming at this first and foremost as a book fan, but specifically as a science fiction book fan, and I had read all three of those for pleasure, and those were all three of those, some of my favorite books of all time. Um, they were really special for me for individual reasons also while I was working on them. Uh, as, as an example, um, I had for years revered the work of Orson Scott Card. He was uh, he and Richard Matheson, uh, I'd have to say, are my two favorite authors. As a result of the work that I do, I get to meet a lot of the authors, and, and so as a result, I'm, I'm now friends with the two Dune authors, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I mean, when they come into town, they come over to my house, they, we go out to dinner, we, you know, it's, 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 a very, it's a lovely thing, and I feel blessed. But the only time that it happened in the opposite order was with Scott Card, because I was actually friends with him before I started narrating audiobooks, and then I was blessed to be asked to record a friend's work. So working on Ender's Game for that reason was, uh, I, I, I mean, there's no words for it. I, I was, it's one of my favorite books of all time, uh, by one of my favorite authors of all time, and it was, uh, God, it was superlative. I, I didn't work on that book very much because the way those books are done is with multiple narrators each doing a different character, essentially. Whatever character is telling that chapter's story, whatever uh, point of view that chapter is written from, that corresponding actor will read that chapter. Yes, yes. And in, in Ender's Game, there was only one chapter done from Bean's point of view. It wasn't even an entire chapter, it was three pages. But I read those three pages because they knew that they wanted me to read the Bean series, which was Ender's Shadow, that, that took off from that book. And so I was the voice of Bean in those books. So it, it's kind of like, uh, I always describe it like, like with Hamlet and uh, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. They're both great plays, but in one play, the characters that are a walk-on are the leads in the other, right. and vice versa. Right. Hamlet's the lead in one, and he's a walk-on, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So um, it, was, it was really special to know that I got to have a piece of... Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead, even if it was a small piece, because I was going to be given a, a great big piece to, to, to chew on in, 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 the, in the Bean Saga, which was wonderful. 
Um, Fahrenheit 451, God. Well, e- even just the title, I have to tell you a story. I was, wor- I was with the Dune authors for a book signing in, in uh, um, uh, Huntington Beach, just south of Los Angeles. And they asked me to come down early because they were going to have dinner. And there was a few authors there, Gregory Benford, Greg Bear. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting with all these legendary authors whose works I've, I've loved and respected and admired for years. And I believe it was Greg Benford who I was sitting next to. And I was really nervous to talk to him. And um, the Dune guys said, uh, so, hey, Scott, uh, tell us, uh, everybody here at the table, why don't you tell us what you're working on now? Because they, really, they don't really know how audiobooks are made. Talk a little bit about what you do. So I did. And they said, they said well, what are you working on next? And I said, um, Fahrenheit 451. And wow. Greg Benford, I believe, I believe it was, Greg Benford turns to me and he says, 451. <laughs> never say 451. Never they say said, 451. Never, never right. say 451, <laughs> kid. They said, Bradbury hates that shit. Pardon my French. That's fine. Um, That's fine. <laughs> I was like, oh, seriously? And even though you just cussed at me, I mean, he wasn't saying it angrily. He was saying it like a, you know, curmudgeonly but friendly right. old, you know, older guy. Um, I was like, oh, my God. First of all, he just cussed at me. That's cool. But second of all, he told me a little snippet that I never would have known. Right. Because... He knew it. He's in the industry. He knows Bradbury. He's <laughs> right, you got a little inside information there. Yeah, and I thought, you know what? I would have read it wrong. I mean, not that it's a huge mistake, but in Bradbury's eyes, it would have been. Right, Somebody you, you don't want to piss off Bradbury. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, it's been so I'm much sorry. fun talking. I, we could probably talk to you for just hours on end, and I'd love to have you back if, if you're willing to come back. Uh, we're gonna oh, be, sure. Happy to do it anytime. We're going to do a, a little chat on uh, Ayn Rand's uh, Atlas Shrug next month. By Ayn Rand, and and I'm hoping that we can maybe uh, schedule you in for that. Seeing as you did read that uh, audiobook, Mountain, I would love to talk about that book. Uh, I had some funny stories while working on it, and uh, uh, it was that was a dream come true. That was uh, it Brilliant. was my mother's favorite book, um, and I'd never gotten a chance to read it. Uh, and yeah, so I, the, I, you I you actually that. read the audiobook? That was your first time reading it, yeah? Uh, yeah. That was my first time. Well, I mean, obviously, I, I had really? to read it ahead of time. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I had never read the book previously to being asked to do the audiobook. And, and the day before, the woman I was dating said to me, it was her favorite book as well, and she said, you know, honey, you really, you really should narrate Atlas Shrugged. And I proceeded to enumerate all of the reasons why I would never be asked to do that job. Oh, wow. First of all, it's been recorded a few times already. already. They, would, they would get a woman to record that book. They would... Right this, that, it would be too expensive for me to go license the book. I'll never be asked to do Atlas Shrugged. And the very next day, Grover Gardner at Blackstone calls me up and says, would you be interested in doing Atlas Shrugged? Wow. And And I thought, from now on, I'm going to go around saying what will never happen. I'll never have somebody give me a million dollars tax-free. I'll never have somebody, you know, just if, if reverse psychology works, then bring it on. (laughs) Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, Then we'll, we'll see you next month for the Atlas Shrugged uh, chat. Thank you so much Sounds for joining, great. and thank you for, so much for what you do. We in, really enjoy your audiobooks. Happy well, to, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Happy chat with Scott. On. Looking forward to talking to you again. Take care, Scott. Sounds great. You all take care. Thanks, Scott. Bye. We've done this seven times, so you guys know what that music means. That means we've come to the end of another episode. Episode 007 in the can. Best episode ever. Best episode I ever. So too. See you next week, folks. Same book time, same book channel. For a list of books and other items discussed on this podcast, go to paulthebookguy.com slash show notes. What will happen next? 
Stay tuned, constant readers. Get all the time. Yeah. Devil in a white city. Devil in a white city. Yeah, the devil in a white city. He's getting heavy. H.H. Holmes killing all kinds of women. Don't know what the fuck Greg is saying because I got my headphones on and I can't read lips. Can't read lips. I can't read lips. No lip reading going on here. 